Thank you for listening to the show. I hope it inspires you and expands your view of what's possible in your journey of wealth creation. My hope is that through a repeated exposure to the ideas and the guests you will find here, your view of finance will change for the better. With that said, there's an important caveat that must be stated. The opinions you will hear on this show are just that, opinions. Please don't misconstrue any of what you're about to hear as legitimate financial advice. Do your own research and don't take anything at face value. Understand that everything you hear on this show is someone else's experience that may or may not work for you. I don't know you, I don't know your situation, so I can't tell you what to do. But I can tell you that the one goal of this podcast is to make you richer, wealthier, and ultimately more fulfilled as a human. I'm glad you're here. Please rate it, review it, share it with the people in your world that matter. And without further ado, enjoy the show. What's up, everyone? Welcome to Levels of Wealth. I'm with my friends, the magician, the wizard behind the curtain, the man myth legend. And if you're watching the video, the gargantuan, muscular physiqued body of Ryan Nidell. Dude, it's good to have you on the show. You too, buddy. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And I, I like that intro, right? The, the man behind the curtain is a good way to describe what I do. I appreciate that. You're welcome. And I've learned this about, I've gotten to know you over the last couple of months. And one of the things that people don't know that I'm about to tell them, so everyone's going to know, is um, the world tends to be run by people like you. I'm not saying it's run by you particularly, but people like you who you, you are the connector, the syndicator behind the scenes. And the more I've gotten to know you, the more I have become a raving fan of everything you stand for. Some people you meet and you're like, man, that person is brilliant. And they're awesome. And then some people you meet and you're like, oh man, they're just such a kind human. And then every once in a while you meet the person who's the same at the same time. Like you're, you're a kind individual, but you're also uh, a ruthless, cunning, terrifying negotiator of an individual. Would that be accurate? No, I'm not lying. Am I? It's not. I look at business as a game to be played. And the more rules of the game you understand, the better you can play it. And uh, I can't say I feel badly, but I feel badly for the people that don't study the rules. So it gives an unfair advantage to those of us that focus time, energy, effort, um, capital resources into understanding, we'll call it the levels of the game, no different than levels of wealth, where if I go toe-to-toe with you, I feel comfortable in my ability to, to come up with a win. Yeah. I mean, you just threatened, you just literally threatened me for a fitness competition. It's like you're 400 pounds <laughs> of muscle and you're threatening a, a tiny little guy over here. Hey, here's everyone for who's watching. This is the first book that um, Ryan like recommended me buy. And I was like, sure, I'll buy it on Amazon. And I, it shows it to my house and it's like a dumbbell <laughs> trying to get this thing open. Security analysis. And dude, this thing is, it is 800 pages of the most dense, boring content I have ever read in my entire life. I don't know how you made it through it. I l- end up looking at that book. It's kind of a, a great, I won't go as, as far as the Bible for for business purchase analyzation investment, but it's a resource, right? So when you understand, to me, part of being uh, deemed intelligent, brilliant, isn't so much of always knowing the answers, it's knowing where to quickly find them. And so everything that I read is is a categorization and cataloging of a data point that I can refer back to at a point in the future. And so that that book to me, as we started you know, forming our friendship and having our conversations, it was just a great place as we were talking back at that point about M&A and, you know, leveraging groups that we had access to and right, just getting to know each other better. It's like, okay, if you want to know what I know or how my brain works, like 
I'll give you or give anybody, right? Some of the foundational elements of the catalog as we have gotten to know each other better, which I love. It's like, well, at some point, why invest all that time and energy to read that book two or three times over? Why not just become friends with the person and have them in your corner that enjoys that the way that I do, which is a brilliant um, acknowledgement that caused some awareness shifting in me, right? Just, I don't have to master everything. I just have to, to know people that love it so that I can call on them when I need some help. Yeah, hundred percent. It's interesting. You, you talked about the retrieval process because one of the things that I'm sure you get asked the exact same thing, but I get asked quite frequently is like, in fact, I was just on a podcast and somebody asked me this three days ago. It was like, how do you get so much done? And how do you get, how do you read the things that you read? Cause I'm constantly tweeting or Instagramming about things I'm reading and I'm, I am voracious. I love it. I'm in one of the businesses that I own in Salt Lake city right now going through a little bit of a cleanup effort, which we'll, we'll, we can talk about openly, right? Everything that glitters in the world is not always gold. As I interrupted your story and your thought process that right now I'm analyzing the growth of a, a business unit that I'm heavily invested into, right? Uh, seven plus, plus figures personally, it's just not yielding the returns. And so there's, I believe to be an investor, to be an owner of a business requires you to be able to, at any moment, be able to roll up your sleeves and complete any function inside the business. It doesn't mean you should. It doesn't mean it's your best utilization of time. But I believe that when the chips are on the table, you have to know where to go stack them. And so this first part of the year, the first five days of the year, I'm in a little town in, I'll say, south of Salt Lake City, focusing on a manufacturing business that I, I have ownership in or own, however you want to say it, with, you know, outside of the suit and the jacket. And then I'll say working attire to help with inventory management, structure, recalibration of expectations, uh, processes, procedures all the way through so that we have a banner 2022 versus a mediocre at best 2021. And just because a deal looks good on a sheet of paper and just because the dollars and cents make sense, and just because uh, the acquisition targets were in alignment and the deal structure was advantageous for myself and my partners doesn't necessarily mean the deal ends up being advantageous long-term. It sometimes requires additional effort other than good ideas and instructions. It sometimes requires hard work. And today is one of those days. Question about that. I'm gonna, I'll share my framework later because it's, it's boring compared to the world of M&A and buying businesses. What's the best deal you've ever bought? Best M&A deal you've ever bought? I'm assuming this is going to be something with no money down, had a fantastic, glorious exit, like, but I could be wrong. Man, best deal I've ever bought. That's a facet. That's a tough question for me, Taylor. I would say right now, because I'm engulfed in it, it's the one that I'm sitting in because it's teaching me more lessons. Right? I look at every every part of the experience of life is a truly learning opportunity. And so this deal was um, high level, a manufacturing facility that was um, cash flow positive. It came with the facility. I had to take over the, the lease. It came with all equipment, all personnel, all existing contracts. Um, and it was about $75,000 out of pocket. So not a no money out of pocket deal by any means. The owner operator, it just kind of worked himself into the ground, which is kind of a sweet spot that you and I are going to share some time covering at the end of the month in well, end of January, where there's this black hole that exists inside a business. And it ends up being between 1 million and 5 million a year in revenue, right? A guy named Greg Crabtree does some really in-depth work on this. And what ends up happening is, these business owners will fight tooth and nail. And sometime in this chasm of one to $5 million a year in revenue, they can't see past it, right? So it requires additional capital investment, additional personnel investment, and the yield isn't going to come on the backside. And so they sit there and they panic. 
and they don't break through that preconceived limit. Well, no different than to me anything else because you brought up working out. Right? Benching 225 pounds is a lot until you've done it once or twice, and then it's just kind of normal. It's just kind of what you do or whatever your, your numbers are. I find business to be the same way. Right? For me, my specialty is getting businesses to just about $100 million a year in revenue. And I'm really good with something that's established, something that's been around, that's hitting its first resistance point, which is typically between one and five million. Then there's another one that comes between you know, five and 25 million, another one that comes at 50 million, and then another one that comes at 100 million. And these are just natural resistance points, no different than investing in the market or in crypto. And you have to understand what causes those resistance points. And most of the time, it's the owner-operator's uh, mindset, right? And there's nothing wrong with their mindset. It's not flawed, but they've, they've worked tooth and nail to get it to the point that it's at now. They probably haven't built a sophisticated amount of systems to replace themselves. And so as they start to have to do that, they've been running on tight margins because that's how I've been swallowing up market share. And those tight margins make it difficult to consider uh, bringing on external talent. And so that was this particular business where the owner was just, I'm, I'm just burnt out. I just don't want to do this anymore. And structured a, a, what I felt to be a good deal, right? Just the assets of the business, the depreciated value of the assets was less than the acquisition price. I'm sorry, was more than the acquisition price. So we're already in a, in a positive situation. If I had to buy and flip it, right, buy it for 75, kind of turn around and probably structured a $200,000 exit. So not that 125000 is necessarily sexy, but it's advantageous, right? It's nice to know you're starting in the right position. And then all the lessons we've gotten to learn, right, about things that I wasn't intimately familiar with, levels of compliance for food-grade facilities and CGMP requirements and OSHA and all types of things, <laughs> like the list of things that this has forced me to study and become aware of is is brilliant for me. Now, on the exit side of things, who knows? Manufacturing is not a quote-unquote sexy business for an exit. It's not normally a high multiple. Uh, might be five or six X, but it's stable, right? I mean, to me, when you manufacture products for someone and you do a good job, there's inherently not a lot of reason to to move manufacturing. It's inconvenient. It's It's not fun. It's like, why would you ever get rid of your landscaper or lawnmower or pool cleaner? You really wouldn't as long as they're doing a good job, right? Unless they're gouging you on price. And so much with this, I look at this as an annuity that maybe long-term has a, a nice 5X, 6X multiple on exit, but more likely, right, get up to $50 million a year. It will be the top line and probably 30% net margin is, is going to be kind of the top of this industry. So just a nice way to right, throw $15 million in the bank every year, right? Nothing... Nothing crazy, nothing that's, I'll say, quote-unquote, earth-shattering, but nice when you look at it for the next 20 years. It's, it's, it's not bad. How did you get into this world of M&A? Because it's not an easy, at least I don't perceive this as an easy world to just fall into. You know, There's not a lot of education out there around this, so you had to be, you were diligent in getting into it. How did that process work, and how did you know you wanted to hop into this world? Yeah, that's a great question. So... I was forced into it a little bit and forced into it from an egoic standpoint. I owned a, a web hosting company with a couple of partners that we had grown very, very rapidly over a 24-month period. Um, obscurity, right? 10,000 active clients to 580,000 clients in about two years. So crazy growth for web hosting that was affiliate-based. And as we went through that, the partners and I saw a different vision for the future, had different things we were interested in. And just decided it was probably best for us to part ways, right? Sell the company off, you know, right off into the sunset thinking, you know, eight, nine figure exits. It's a tech company, right? Gosh, this would have been 10 years ago almost. So whole different time. Like, oh, we're, we're going to be independently wealthy. And it was a painful lesson in how bad you can structure a deal, 
And when I, when I say that, Taylor, gosh, I was 28 as we started the process. I was 29 by the time we wrapped it up. And by the time you go through your first due diligence cycle, right? So your, your letter of intent, you get your term sheet, and you're like, I've made it and I'm celebrating, right? I'm spending money. I don't really have like all the quintessential things that you're not supposed to do. I checked every one of those boxes, right? And my partners had had wealth before me. And so they were almost laughing at this a little bit, I think, quietly. Because again, we, we weren't enemies, but we certainly weren't very close at that point. And what ends up happening is you start going through due diligence and start realizing, okay, there's this crazy thing called revenue recognition. And it's like, okay, well, what's revenue recognition? Well, we're selling web hosting packages that have five-year terms to them, but we're, we're recognizing all the revenue the minute we collect the payment, right? Why wouldn't we? We're, we're already able to spend that cash. Well, no, in, in GAAP accounting principles, that, that has to be amortized over a five-year period. It has to be extended out on equal, equal payments. And then in theory, you should do a deferred comp calculation as well to match that, right? The, the, the revenue and the compensation, the expense, you kind of all tie themselves out over the same period. But we weren't doing any of these things. And so we start going through due diligence and we're getting really laughed at. And I didn't know we were being laughed at at that moment in time. I had no, no clue. But it was like we were ripe for the picking with really GoDaddy, a subsidiary of GoDaddy, the web hosting company, just ate us for lunch. Where this, this deal that started out, right, we were $50 million in revenue, then we were $35 million in revenue. We were on a trend for maybe $25 million in revenue. So our revenue is in the wrong direction. Our accounting principles are way off. We have no checks and balances. We have no processes and procedures. We have no signing metrics. Like out of the 165 things we should have, we might have had 35 of them. But right, we thought we knew everything. And by the time the deal was done, we realized how little we knew. And so through that, I got to that was my first entry point in even understanding this crazy world of MA, where again at, at 28, I'm this incredibly overconfident individual, and maybe even a little larger in stature than I am now. Huge ego. And I'm in these boardrooms in Chicago and in New York and Miami and LA where these people that I'm sitting in front of, Taylor, there, I feel intelligent, right? I feel like I have a good head on my shoulders, a nice breadth and depth of knowledge. These people are eating me for lunch. Like they are true. Like I'm, I'm flabbergasted at their ability to talk circles and I can't answer their questions. Like I physically don't have something to even potentially respond with. So you start with, gosh, we started with. I think the roadshow was 32 companies, 32 funds, private equity groups, companies that were interested in buying us. I think we got term sheets from three. That's how bad of a job I did. And not that that's bad, but it, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad. It, it could certainly be a lot better. At that moment, I wasn't self-aware enough to really start to dive into the M&A process. I was just happy to be out of the partnership, have some cash. I ended up growing and selling a tech platform. I grew a, a little app that helped custom clothing companies sold at more of a licensing deal, which was first entry point of that, or just solved a problem in the industry. I realized that the supply chain was inherently inefficient and ineffective in custom clothing, and the error rate was very high. And so I had a little bit of a tech background from the web hosting world and just figured out some creative ways to work through that and then realized that I wasn't the only person that might need them. There were a bunch of other people that liked that software as well. So that started to get me a little deeper. I started to understand licensing deals, right? Again, trial by fire. But I had this pool of people to then call on. I had the old M&A guys. I had the old investment bankers. They kept everybody's card. And even if they ate me for lunch, I still felt comfortable calling them back, right? I'm not, it doesn't bother me at all. And so they started like, okay, look, like you're trying this again. Here's some things you might want to consider. So that deal got a little bit better. Then I grew a, a CBD company, direct to consumer from know, 16 to 18 or so and sold that to to a group out of just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
And that was another one of those just learning lessons on being able to go back into all the different connections I'd made up until that point, like you said, being the conduit and having at this point, 15 or 20 different private equity guys, merger and acquisition specialists, investment bankers that I can call that will answer my phone call and know that I'm not trying to pitch them something and know that I'm not trying to leverage them for a deal, just looking to have a conversation. That deal went okay, which then forced me into just being curious. And so I, I, I did what I believe everybody should do. I reached out to the investment bankers I got along with the best. And I said, hey, I'd like to, to pay you to, to coach me. And they didn't know what coaching was. They thought it was crazy. Like, this is, you want to pay us to do what? I said, well, look, your time is equating to about 1500 bucks an hour. If I have my math right, I'd like to secure three hours a month of your time. I'm willing to pay you 4500 bucks a month. So you're not out anything. I don't have a set schedule or agenda. I just want to know the framework. I want to make sure that when I'm in my next deals, I'm not flat-footed. I'm not trying to compete with you. I don't, I'm not going to have your intellect. I'm not going to have your, your pedigreed you know, Ivy League school background. What I'm going to have is real world experience, and I want to know that I'm playing the game the right way. And that's really what this ended up being was three different individuals that I had paid to consult with me or coach me for anywhere between two and six months, cross referencing those data points. Right? You've laughingly said to me, I'm, uh, I look at myself as a very advanced pattern recognition creature, like a machine, really. Like if there's a pattern, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to cross the data points and create a pattern with it. And I started seeing the patterns that then led me into right? The books, the, the, the trainings, all the pieces and parts. And I started my own little consulting agency. The first five clients I had just happened to have businesses that they were wanting to grow and exit. It wasn't that I was marketing myself that way. It wasn't that I was claiming to be some sort of specialist. So now I'm getting to see five more deals. And the speed at which I'm able to learn and assimilate information is exponentially greater than my counterparts because I'm seeing these deals all transaction real time. In addition to my three or four personal exits, in addition to the coaching consulting, in addition to the books. And I'm like, Okay, now the game gets slow, as I call it. And I think that's the part, I don't like to use the word mastery, but uh, Taylor, I'd love to hear your insight on this. To me, there becomes a point where I have enough information about subject matter that it, it feels very slow to me. It's like the game slows down. It's like, it's almost laughing to say it's Neo in the Matrix. Like you can see what's coming. You can kind of estimate where the, where the ball ends up at the end of the, end of the time period. And that's where this started to be in the small and mid-market sector, right? I, I haven't taken businesses, you know, north of the half billion dollar exit before. I haven't taken businesses public before. Those are new endeavors I'm a part of right now with some different things I'm a part of that are more feathers in the cap, more learning lessons, but really just excitement, right? Excitement for what's possible. Excitement to see that eight years ago, nine years ago, I go from being a part of one of the worst structured deals in the world that had everything wrong with it to helping structured deals now that are advantageous, to say it politely. They're set up the right way. A couple of things that are unique that I want to pull out of your mindset for a second, and then we can talk about mastery, but I also have more questions for you. Selfishly, I have questions for you because I want to know where your brain is finding patterns next. I think one of the biggest things that I would say is like, I hope people are taken away from your story is you learned through necessity and difficulty and what could likely be defined as borderline traumatic in building something and then kind of getting eaten alive on it. I think so many people, they tend to justify inadequacy and they make excuses and they allow situational things that would be problematic to take them out of the game. What, what you did is you took it as an opportunity. You're like, this happened to me and I'm never going to let it happen to me again. Not the same way. I'm going to use my intellect and my ability to learn to make sure that this this role that I have occupied, which is getting ruined on a deal, doesn't happen again. 
And so the next deal was a little bit better. And the next deal was a little bit better and better and better and better. Did someone teach you that? Did you learn it in sports? Is like that just part of how you're wired? I played sports in, in high school. I would say, Taylor, it's more of how I'm wired, right? I, I have to look at, I believe there is, I'll say, a God-given path for, for many of us, right? And maybe for all of us. And I think that path can have its ebbs and flows, and I think it can change. I think in as I was going through these seasons of life, I didn't realize that this is where I was going to end up. I wasn't searching for this desired end state. I was really searching for an internal internal feeling, an internal state. And what happened is I went through an insecurity phase, right? And in, in from my, my 20s until early 30s and massive insecurity and had very little self-worth, had very little sense of self. I, I can say that now from a sense of awareness, I didn't have it back then. Part of the story that I skipped over just wasn't relevant for that part was from selling the hosting company until the custom clothing app, there's this window of time where I started a high-risk merchant processing company. Thought I knew everything under the sun, miscalculated almost every ratio under the sun possible, and ended up going completely bankrupt, right? Not so much as far as the filing goes, but run of properties in foreclosure, was able to pull them out, not on a short sale, but they were, right, it was in foreclosure, cars repossessed by really as low as it goes, right? I was down to uh, just over 2,500 bucks uh, in total net worth right, at that point. And that was, I was 30, 30 years old, right? So about nine years ago at this point. And so it was when you talk about out of necessity, out of what created some of this, I didn't have a choice for some of these steps that came along. It was a, it was a hustle. It was a calculated hustle. Um, but then I went through this next, you know, I went through the insecurity phase and I went through the, right, talk about the hero's journey. I started going through the, the path of uh, curiosity, of trying to understand myself, understand why I had had some of these patterns before. And then through understanding some of those, I get another, you know, go around as we kind of hit the six o'clock mark on the hero's journey. And that was the the licensing of the software. It's like, okay, I kind of get to, to tap back into this and see, can I cross over this threshold? And yes, I can cross over it. Yes, it's a good deal. Then, you know, get back to the top with, you know, selling the company to the, to the CBD company off. And it's like, okay, now I'm seeing these pieces go together. And it's, it's more divinity to me. It, there, there's something greater, greater in front of me. I didn't set out for this. And I believe in going, laughingly going with the flow a little bit. I, I do what I enjoy. I do what I love until I don't love it anymore. Then I take a step back. I see, do I really not love it or am I just frustrated with it in the moment? If I continue to not be in love with it, I leave it. Right? I, I used to beat myself up for that. But it, that's actually been my biggest blessing is understanding metaphysics, understanding health and exercise physiology, understanding the body, understanding business, understanding marketing and sales. And I used to demonize myself for taking these little windows of time where maybe it's a year, maybe it's six months, maybe it's six years. And then what's wrong with me for not sticking to it? Because the world tells you to stick to it. Uh, from where I sit, I, I don't think that's true. It's not true for me, at least. I don't know if there is an absolute truth other than chasing what brings you life, brings you joy, brings you energy, and and allowing that to be some of the guide for where we go. 100%. Question for you. Was there ever a moment when you regretted a deal? Like, was there a deal that's so bad that you regretted it? Or pretty much all of them, you just you reframe them as learning lessons and move on? Eventually got to the point of reframing all of them as learning lessons, but I'll tell you, I regretted parts of each one of them. I regretted the web hosting deal for the fact of all the things I know now. Like if, if we had just done any of the things differently, we could have at least stabilized the ship versus a downward revenue trend. We could have, instead of, you know, a little sub, gosh, sub eight figure exit, it could have been right, mid eight figures, certainly, right? It wasn't a sexy exit at all. The licensing deal was a pretty good deal for what it was at that time period. The CBD deal, I left a lot of meat on the table on that one, right? A, a tremendous amount. 
And so, yes, these are huge learning lessons. So I don't regret it because like the CBD business, I know the guy that I sold it to, he since had grown it massively, like 10x what I had it at, which was fantastic. Then he sold it off to a private equity group, which is even better. Like I love being able to follow along with some of these. Obviously, GoDaddy is GoDaddy. So we, we know they're, they're still okay. They figured it out. The software platform is still st- sticking around. The licensing is still there. So that's a really good deal for me because it's, as I call it, mailbox money. There's just something that shows up every month. So licensing, I see why on Shark Tank, you got some of the sharks who just love a good licensing deal, but they're pretty hard to come by. So great question. I think regret is a foolish man's exercise. I think you regret something until you can take a step back and learn the lesson from it to understand that it was a gift. So no, I don't actually regret any of them at this point. Where's your favorite place right now to find deals? Is it just relationships? Is there, do you have systems set up? And I sort of know part of the answer to this, but I think it's important for us to talk about it. Yeah. So I had a little, little education for what it's worth. You're going to have the normal deal market. You're going to have the flippers of the world. You're going to have the biz buy sells. You're going to have the micro acquisitions. Gosh, I can, I can list 12 different websites where you can find deal flow from. Um, no different than the real estate world, an off-market deal versus an on-market deal are vastly different deals. They're vastly different structures. So that is where most people start. I can't say there's anything wrong with that, but my deals now come all relationship-based. I think that when you do good things and you have good intent behind things, that's one of the big differences from me and the, I'll say, the private equity or uh, I'm not private equity so much, but investment bankers and M&A specialists, they're, they're snarky. They're a little cutthroat. They're a little, if there's not something in it for me, I'm not going to have a conversation. And I've approached this industry vastly different where let's have a conversation. Let me, let me add some value. Let me see if there's something that maybe you're missing prior to engaging with any person about any sort of deal. Because I don't want you to have the same sort of feelings I had through the progression I went through. So my deals come from networking, but not in the traditional, like go to the chamber of commerce, networking. Think of the people that have access points to people you'd like to do business with, right? And those are going to be, right? To me, I used to run car dealerships a long time ago. So I have deal flow that comes from a really high-end car dealership conglomerate across the country because there's only, I used to run Ferrari and Lamborghini dealerships. There's only 22, 24 of those across the United States. So the the dealer body is pretty tight and you got to figure the guys that can, guys and, and gals that can afford those cars um, probably have some level of business acumen are always looking to buy and sell and, and flip and get out. Um, um, different wealth managers are, provide good deal flow, right? People that have high net worth clients that um, take active interest in, in success. So I think that, and then I have a whole system built at scale right, for the private equity fund that I have to go after deals, right? Which is its own, own individual path where you look at I'm looking for specific deals with specific sort of marginalization kind of in that buy box I think would be the right term right are they are they sub 20 million because that's really really the sweet spot for me are they still owner operated are they older than three years old have they hit some sort of sticking point they have at least 15 percent in that marginalization are they unencumbered with debt there's some things that way where through some data aggregation then it's just a series of cold call outreaches right and and really getting someone excited about the possibility of what could be. And what I found is kind of the sneaky back door, which I don't believe to be sneaky. Um, it, you consult with the business first. I can consult with anyone or my company can. Here are the things that you should do. Here are the things that would make your company more successful. And during the consulting time, one of two things happen. Uh, the business itself says, yeah, we're up for the challenge. Or sometimes the business owners say, I'm, I don't want to do this. Like, what are my other options? 
well, I'm, I feel honest and integrous because I can hand you the playbook. This is what has to happen no matter who owns it. You're saying you don't want this path and plan. That's great. Here's what your company's worth now without that. And I'm willing to buy it for that. And just so you know, I'm going to do the things I said I was going to do. I'm just going to take more of the upside. And I like to structure deals in that sort of situation where the owner operators stay on for a, a continued carry forward interest. I like them to keep five or 10% because I want them to see the upside of the hard work as well. Like I don't want them, they don't have to be actively involved. I actually don't want them to be, but it doesn't feel right to me to completely eradicate them from the deal because it's a 18 month, two year, I'll say enhance and flip versus fix and flip. And we just follow the same playbook, right? It's the same pattern over and over and over. It's like, it's, it's just slow motion. Yeah, it's it's it cuts them into the upside as well, which is probably feels nice for you, given that you're a kind person that cares about other humans, which, like you already mentioned, is rare for the space. You're a unique character, and that's your differentiation point that you bring, I think, to the marketplace. Thank you. I, I would agree with that. It feels like it. I just do what I wish others would do for me. Right? There's plenty of things I don't know in the world, and I'd like to not be taken advantage of. And if you don't know, you don't even know you're being taken advantage of. So I'd rather lay out all the facts on the table and make educated decisions between invested parties. One of the things I love about the space that you've gotten me into is I come from real estate and it, everything is is a puzzle. It's just math at the end of the day. If you buy a deal wrong, you're not making money on the deal. It's going to be very difficult to... People think that it, it is about the value add, which it is to an extent. But if you buy the deal the wrong time or the wrong price, you can't value your, add your way out of it of a bad acquisition. And so the more I've gotten in in trying to make it through the pile of books in my office that you sent me to read on this, which I'm getting closer every day, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in that when, when you get into a deal, you are getting in for a certain amount of time so that you can increase the service or the utility of the business and prop up the enterprise value of the business. And one of the things I'd love to like maybe end on, depending on your time, is there's a way of thinking that M&A guys and you and real estate guys bring to the table, which is like, everything's free. You don't pay for anything. Money down is arbitraged into money out later. Have you applied this to other areas of your life? Like, because really, you're, you, you, dude, you go into businesses and you buy these businesses with the business's own cash flow. It's crazy. It's literally free. But it's a way of thinking. It's like a style of thinking that is, that is arbitrage and mathematical. You want to talk about that a little bit? Is, is that something you can teach in, in three minutes on a podcast? for free to people to add value to their lives? I'll certainly give it my best. And I, Taylor, I have as much time for you today as, as you have for me. I don't have anything scheduled after this. So be happy to keep going for as much time as you'll have me for. In in the systems and, and procedural thought process, I'm, I'm a mechanical engineer by, by degree of study. And so what ends up happening to me, take out engineering, take out all that. What ends up really being is focusing at an endpoint first and working backwards, right? So to me, I focus on endpoint first and then get into a level of first order thinking. Where, where's the biggest impact that can be made to get me closer to that desired endpoint? Business acquisition is one part, but I'll lump this into personal life. Right? You take uh, something like during the pandemic, my, my wife and I have enjoyed having someone help us clean our house. Right? So to me, it's just part of life. It's, it's not good nor bad. It's just part of it. And during the pandemic, the business owner was nervous that uh, all of a sudden, their business would be eradicated. And so I'm sitting there thinking, like, I think wealthy people um, or people with certain means will consistently have their, their house cleaned, taken care of. I don't think it's going to go away. And so I leveraged this and said, look, I'm, 
even if it's just me buying it and buying the cash flow, what ends up happening is I'm able to ended up buying this business. It's not a huge business. It's not, you know, a seven figure business. It's not even on anybody's radar. Uh, maybe it's opportunistic. Maybe it's right place, right time. Maybe those are, uh, you know, synchronistic in nature. What ends up happening is you're able to look for deals in obscure places that help bring together various parts of your life, right? And I think that's a, a lot of this is once you start understanding the way the leverage works and whether it's owner finance, whether it's SBA, it doesn't really matter how the finance game works out. It can be hard money lenders. Think of all the different places that you currently frequent consistently that you're spending money. Well, if you're spending money there and the places you're spending money at or services are consistently busy, you're not the only person, right? Other people are, are also contributing to this ecosystem. So what I find fascinating then is to be able to zoom out a little bit and say, is this something that I might be able to either enhance, make better, systematize, consolidate down into something that can yield fruit for a longer period of time. We can call that maybe a thought process. And I don't know that I can teach it all that well other than the fact of there are opportunities everywhere all around us for everything. And I believe that all of us are inherently truly limitless. I I believe the only limit that exists on human beings are the ones that are, are preconceived. And that if someone has done it, I certainly can do it. And if my mind can think it, I can actually achieve it. And whether that's a Napoleon Hill thing, whether that's Tony Robbins thing, it doesn't matter who it is. We start looking at that and it's like, man, they're, like I am limitless. Like every deal, there's a way. Every opportunity is there for a reason. And I think that becomes an important differentiator in just looking at life as a whole. Right. Instead of like, yeah, I'm very aware of the words that I speak and the thoughts that I say to myself. Using the removal of something is not an abundance based mindset. It's not attractive. It's not going to bring more of what I do want. So it's not, I don't want to be broke. Right. That's, that doesn't work to me. Like that's, that's energetically putting on the universe all the things that you don't want, which is the negative vibration, negative energy, negative attraction. However, what I do want to be is have a billion dollars in net worth. Okay, so if I had a billion dollars in net worth, that is obviously that I'm not broke unless inflation becomes you know, absurdly lucrative or ludicrous, I suppose would be the other way to say that. Right, A billion dollars in net worth is, is the opposite of being broke. And so anytime I find myself saying a negative thought or pondering something, I don't want this, it's pausing very quickly and then pivoting into what do I actually want? What is the thing that I want? And just those two shifts, Taylor, of, right, I'll call it the multidimensional thinking, multidimensional being, right, not just what's in front of us, but how can we take ownership of the situation, as well as acknowledging the thoughts that go into my mind, and the words that come out of my mouth, have been incredibly impactful for me. Yeah. Do you ever deal with imposter syndrome as of now being on the other side of the insecurity and sitting in room with rooms of people that are already billionaires? Do you wrestle with that? And if so, how do you do it? I do, right? I, I don't. I don't need to be sheepish with. I dealt with that when you and I first became friends, right? I looked at it, Taylor, that you had achieved these incredible things and had built this loyal tribe, this incredible, almost cult-like following, and had this level of certainty about you that I felt as though I had very little to offer to our friendship. Take business opportunities aside, I felt like, man, this this stuff is so easy for me. This is like. And if it's easy for me, it's got to be super easy for Taylor, right? Like legitimately, this isn't me pandering to Taylor's ego. Him and I have had this conversation as you're listening, 
we've had this conversation with each other. And what ended up becoming more and more aware for me was as Taylor started acknowledging, like, no, you're, you're, you're wired a little differently. And then other people were sharing with me that I was wired differently, not in a negative way, not in a, in a condescending type of way, but more in a, you know, you have something here. It started to help eradicate some of the imposter syndrome. It doesn't happen so much to me when I'm in a room full of, I'll say eight, nine, 10 figure net worth people. Because they're just they're there to a point a little further down the road than I am. It happens with people that I'm close with, um, close to in proximity, close to in age, that I feel like have an, an exponentially greater capacity than I do, which is becoming fewer and far between because I'm t- acknowledging more and more of my gifts. But it's still there. I still wrestle with it. It's an interesting question because sometimes people ask me this and I'm like, I don't think you ever outgrow imposter syndrome. I think that the moment that you hit your peak is probably the moment you don't wrestle with it anymore. I have a really interesting way of viewing this because the successful people tend to achieve in their mind before they achieve in the physical realm. And when that's the pattern, what happens is you've achieved something and you've gone to a place in your mind, but reality hasn't caught up with you. And there in the gap is imposter syndrome. And so it's actually a really dangerous thing. I think when you get to the place where you're like, I haven't dealt with imposter syndrome in years, it's like, well, you probably stagnant, bro. Like you probably haven't done much in the way of growth. And the only reason I I can say that confidently because I've talked to so many people that make more money, less money, but are all uh, like on the same trajectory upward. And it's just something about the human psyche that deals a little bit with insecurity from time to time. Unless you're, you know, uh, literally a psycho, like a crazy person, a, a pathological narcissist. So it's like important for people to start, I think, speaking about it and you have no qualms with opening up about your personal journey. But I just want to ask for the for the sake of the people listening. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. I think that to me that there was such peace uh, a long time ago. Uh, a long time ago, time is is relevant and relative. By 2018, I launched a podcast that was is still called 15 Minutes to Freedom. There's no new content there. There hasn't been for a long time. And I woke up one day and realized I wanted to do something bigger with the world. Like I want to add more value to the world. But the stories that I was afraid to tell that someone else was going to share about me, that was going to stop me. Like that was going to be the thing that eradicated my ability to share. And so I said, you know what? I'm just going to share my own every day for 15, 20 minutes. I'm going to share just an ugly truth about my life until there's nothing left to share. And I got, gosh, I think I did 470 days in a row and Taylor used a podcast of like seven days a week, like every day. It's a lot, a lot of content. I think I ended up at like 500 episodes maybe where I was just out of things. Like there was no more, there was nothing of, of any sort of negative attribute to add. And it didn't really fit the, the avatar that I was in search of anymore. But it was this thing of just acknowledging like we are all to me imperfect creatures in the process of progress. Some are just quicker than others. And so to, to welcome that and say that I've failed, I've had failed businesses. I make bad business decisions. I, failed relationships, I've, you know, infidelity is anabolic use. Like I can go through this whole litany of things, but instead of being insecure and being frustrated with them, welcoming the fact that whatever judgment that someone might cast upon me, I had to open up the awareness of that. That is really more or less a mirror to their own universe. That's a mirror to their own reality, more so than a, a window into mine. And so it's, it's, it's a powerful place to me. It's such a shift. Yeah. hundred percent. Real quick, I'm going to run down a list, uh, and I want to know what your, your first thought is on, on some of these things that I'm going to tell you. Cool? That's real, you can't yep. think, bro. You can't use your intellect. You have to use your instincts. No thinking. That's tough. 
Okay. We talk about inflation. We talk about inflation, but Apple recently was the first company to hit $3 trillion market cap. What do you think about that? I think it's incredible. I think that they are innovators. I think that seeing their new potential iPhone replacement is going to be glasses that integrate the, their AI-based tech. I think it's awesome. Right? I think there's. I think the sky is the limit. I think that those that innovate are going to continue to swallow up market share in every industry. I think the stagnant ones might as well cash it in. Are you concerned by the ability for monopolistic tendencies in companies like Apple that are pulling away data from social media companies and then monetizing advertising on their own platform? No, I'm inspired. If they can do it, so can I. So can we. I'm not at all. That's not the field I wish to play in right now. But I think it's right, Tim Cook and what they've done recently. Like, fascinating to me. It, it's a case study in in how to pull it off. Not something to be frustrated with, but something to look to for guidance and, and education on how to do it ourselves. It's a case study in operational efficiency. Yeah. Okay. Next, Tesla, Elon Musk, nine hundred and thirty-six thousand vehicles was the delivery in twenty twenty-one. But 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 but. They produced 930,000 vehicles in 2021. So 6,000 was from the year before. Almost a million vehicles in the year 2021. You bullish on Elon or what do you think? You think they're going to slow down? No, no. They're going to consistently ramp up. They're going to find more efficiencies. I'm not I'm not um, negative on Elon or on Tesla. I think the rest of the world is going to catch up. I think that they have to keep innovating at a breakneck speed. When you look at companies like Lucid uh, on the corner, you look at even the new Ford Lightning pickup truck and some of the things they're doing where it's going to take the EV world to the, the mass populace, people that are comfortable with a Ford motor company, you know, the, the blue oval on their hood, and are afraid, if you will, of an EV from this unproven company, all of a sudden it comes mass market. So no, I'm still super bullish. I think they're still great. I think Elon's got a lot of, a lot of leg, leg room left, a lot of runway. I think innovation, I think the new Roadster is going to be vital. How, how the new pickup truck launch hits. Like There's so many things they have in the works. Speaking of Ford, Ford uh, was actually 2021's top auto stock because of the announcement that they're going to produce 200,000 Mustang Mach-E's, 200,000. But it shows you how far behind other electric innovators are, 930,000. They'll do over, Tesla will do over a million dollars easily in 2022, and uh, Ford is committing to 200,000 units by the end of 2023. That's not even 2022. I don't see a reality where these companies catch up easily. I don't think that's what Elon's about. But when you look at the supercharger network and the head start they have, these companies fell asleep at the wheel in a major way. They did. But I think by a contrarian viewpoint, I think some of Elon selling off the stock in the first quarter or fourth quarter was not only because of tax, but I think some of these other companies are going to make a push. I think you think, see things like Lucid and Ford. I think it's going to start eroding market share. I think if you look at the normal adaptation curve from any new emerging market, Elon and, and Tesla were obviously in the front and the, the forefront, but now it's coming mass market. Now, now it's not as sexy. Now there's going to be margin constriction. These are just normal economic cycles. Yeah, definitely. You want to know what is funny is that this stock popped up on my radar this morning as a buy opportunity. McDonald's. Have you read anything about McDonald's and where they're positioned right now? I have not. So here's here's the case. Uh, Piper Sandler upgraded McDonald's as a buy opportunity because the rising labor and beef costs. So they're saying that McDonald's is uniquely positioned to leverage their size. And here, here it is again, operational efficiency to be able to capitalize on the recovering restaurant industry. You're going to be a McDonald's stockholder? What you think? 
going to McDonald's business? I'm not. So I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat vertically integrated. I'm in the supply chain of that industry. So I'm, I'm partners in a uh, calf to cow operation in Wyoming all the way, Amazing. all the way into the slaughterhouse and all the way through. So I see the issues that are going on in that industry. They're certainly very, very valid. We specialize in a different part of the market, right? We're organic, free range, no hormones, no antibiotics. So we're a little different market. You're in the elitist market. Cool. I am right. I, I have. A, I, I still am enough of a person that um, the way my brain works. If it's not a place that I would frequent or not something I would consider consuming, I just can't put my dollars behind it. I, I still think we vote with our dollars across the board. I understand that. That makes sense. Any stocks that you are looking into or that have caught your eye, or any crypto that you're kind of like, man, this is something I'm super passionate about. I'm trying to play cat. You're you're just businesses. You're like all. I want to buy the whole business. You're like Warren Buffett. I I am. So if. I think that every business owner, if someone's listening to, to the podcast, I'd encourage you to, to read Warren Buffett's book or the book about Warren Buffett, Snowball. I think if, if someone were to study Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger and understand the thought process that if, if a business idea can't be written on the back of a napkin at a bar, it's probably too complicated. And they're just two quote unquote simple guys from Nebraska. Uh, Munger's not, but saying they're two simple guys from Nebraska, that if, if they can't understand it, they're not going to invest in it. I've, I've followed that. And so much of it is they want to buy enough equity to take controlling interest in businesses. Can you map out fractional reserve lending on the back of a napkin? Not at this moment, but I bet if you give me a week, I could. It's difficult. It will be very difficult for you to do. It'd be, it really would come down to one thing, and that's the size of the napkin. Mm-hmm. That's what it would come down to. I think that they're... I think that they're one of the they're they're the greatest dynamic investor duo in history, no doubt about it. But I think that the world is changing so quickly that like value investing, does value investing really work in the markets anymore? Or do you have to buy whole businesses? It, it doesn't work as far as if you go back to the original original works of Benjamin Graham. It just doesn't work from the traditional price earnings ratio attribution that they would have originally touted. So, no. And I think right what I'm excited about now is catching up. Uh, catching up to you is a loose term, but DeFi, right? I think that Web 3.0 and DeFi and how that's going to... Scam. Uh, uh, <laughs> scam. And, and t- if you talk to Munger... Stay away. <laughs> yeah, t- t- talk to Munger and all those guys, it, it is. But I think in the real world, it's it's going to revolutionize everything. As we looked at some of the things that Taylor, you and I have discussed about um, vertically integrated platforms to help with business automation sophistication, it's only going to be relevant for another eight or 10 years before everything's blockchain-based and it's not going to be it's not going to be an issue. And I bet in 30 years, something like a QuickBooks and its normal iteration will cease to exist because there'll be zero necessity for it. You just are going to have to have people that are of the generation of ours or newer generations that are pushing that to be the way forward because of baby boomers and, and that industry, that that demographic isn't going to understand the business application in its purest form. And change is difficult, right? To get off of something like a, a QuickBooks to move over, that's that's miserable. But the businesses that I'll say, let's say that you and I establish, I don't know that we'd ever want to start with QuickBooks if we didn't have to. Why wouldn't we just do blockchain from day one? Why wouldn't we be the forefront of that? There's, there's little reason not to do it now. So I think that when you start removing the necessity for banks, you start seeing that you know, even conservative investors can pull 15 to 20% APY just staking in the DeFi world and pretty stable coins. And it's a, it's, a t- it's a tough way not to be looking at creating a different level of wealth at this time. Yeah. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, but I don't have the time to get into them. Maybe we'll talk about that again uh, in a month or so. But anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't, you're like, this guy's missing out on the biggest opportunity 
ever? One thing, and that would be what makes a company worth more money? I think when it, when it really comes down to it, the, there's, there's two questions I would have asked. What, what makes a company worth more money? I can't say the most money, but more. And that's uh, everything about due diligence, everything about growing and scaling a business is all centered around risk mitigation. You want to know when the next person comes in to buy it, that it is as risk adverse as possible. And only you know for your business what that could mean, but it's going to mean a certain amount of redundancy in key positions. It's going to mean documented process and procedures that are followed consistently to a T. And it's going to mean making sure all your financials are dialed in to a point that is easy to understand and backed in sound gap principles. And then the only other thing that I would have said to, to question, I don't really know how to, how to phrase this as a question you could have asked me, but there's a, a fascinating divergence between what a first-time entrepreneur believes their company is worth and what their business is actually worth. And so you have to re- be able to remove yourself from the fact that you built your business and look at data points that are emotionless. Because as you go to market for the first time and you remember the 60-hour weeks for three years you put in, and you're convinced that your business is worth $60 million because why it just should be. Because somebody told you it was somewhere no different than a house, no different than any other property or investment. It's only worth what someone will pay for it. And the good thing is with buying and selling businesses, you don't have the only business. It's not the only one. 100%. There's what is this worth and then there's what will someone pay to acquire this thing, which sometimes works in your favor and sometimes it does not. So it's a very good distinction. It's a good place to end, man. 